we've never really talked about a strategy for how to get bigger, but we have talked about what it looks like for us to get better. Go and make disciples of all nations. He wants us to go even to the places and to the people we're uncomfortable with. We're never gonna be content to simply fill seats and have services. It's always been about figuring out how to connect or reconnect people to God, through Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Good morning. Welcome to the fourth and final part of this series we've called Multiply. We're um, taking the first month of Jan- or the first month of 2024 uh, to talk about where we believe God is leading us as a church. Um, so it's been a good start to the new year. We've got a long ways to go, um, but I think it's been a really good start. I'm looking forward to moving on uh, to something else so I don't have to listen to myself on the intro video. Um, one of my favorite scenes um, from the movie National Treasure, uh, which stars one of our generation's greatest actors, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, our national treasure. Um, his character, uh, Benjamin Gates, um, uh, he, he sneaks into this bigwig party celebrating the signing of the um, Declaration of Independence. And while he's there, he's randomly called on to make a toast. And uh, Benjamin Gates' character, without skipping a beat, raises a glass and he says, to high treason. To high treason. That's what these men were committing when they signed this Declaration of Independence. Had we lost the war, which seemed likely, they would have been hung, beheaded, drawn and quartered, and oh, my personal favorite, their entrails cut out and burned. So here's to the men who did what was considered wrong in order to accomplish what they knew to be right. Pretty staggering to to think about the magnitude of that moment, historically speaking, not in the movie, the actual signing of the Declaration of Independence. The different trajectory our country could have taken if we had lost Um, that war, if they had faltered in courage or decided it was too hard, um, our nation's history would have turned out a lot different. Like we'd all be driving on the left side of the road (laughs) and having tea and crumpets at four o'clock every afternoon. You'd have to work on the 4th of July. Like totally different. But that moment um, in our nation's history was a defining moment. It was a defining season for us. And uh, I, I say all of that because I don't want to overstate this, but I don't want to understate it either. I, it's not as emotional as that, but um, we're in a season. We're in a moment that's defining for us as a church, where we're going, the things that we've talked about, the things that we've planned. It's going to um, direct or redirect um, the steps that we take in our future as a church for us individually, for families, for couples, um, and again, for us as a church. Like, I I think about some of the decisions that we've made, some of the decisions that we're going to have to make um, in the the very near future. Uh, One of the decisions I'm going to tell you about at the end of the message, it's going to bring about new challenges. It's going to bring about new opportunities as well. Um, and it's, it's terrifying and it's exciting to me all at the same time. It's terrifying for me all at the same time, right? Um, and you've been in moments like that. You've had seasons like that. We normally don't know it until we look back. But we've had seasons. We have decisions. We've had things in our family, things in our occupation. 
Um, so we know what this is like. And again, we don't know it in the moment. It's usually when we get further down the road and look back. But this is a defining moment. This is a defining season for us as a church. I'm glad we get to do this together. Um, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad that for those of you who have stuck out this entire series and come to church four weekends in a row. Um, um, so let's, let's jump in. If you've got a Bible or a mobile device, I'd love for you to find Genesis 18. Uh, we've been tracking with um, the life of Abraham, this man who um, God uh, multiplied his life for eternal significance. Um, and I'm going to set the stage for what's happening here in the story, and then we'll look at it. There are three mysterious men that show up to have this conversation um, with Abraham. They have two purposes for their visit. Number one, they're going to tell Sarah, his 90-year-old um, wife, that she's pregnant um, with Isaac. Um, and then the second reason for um, their visit was um, to intend to destroy the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're, they're notorious for not just their sexual immorality, but their cruelty and oppression of the poor. And so God is going to destroy them. So these three mysterious men, they meet with Abraham and Sarah, they tell them the happy news first, and then they move on to the not-so-happy news. We'll pick it up in verse 16. It says this, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Who are these men? Like, who are these people? And, and we know at least one of them is God himself, because he talks in the first-person voice of God, we assume the other two are angels. So the one who is God says, should we, like, should we let Abraham know what's getting ready to happen? Should we fill him in on our plan? Verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Is that the first time that God has ever said that? No, this comes up over and over and over again. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So he, he decides to let Abraham in on the plan. Verse 22, the men, the two others of God, turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, a little bit of backing up here. You remember last week, um, Lot's nephew lives, or Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom with his family. So we assume Abraham is kind of hanging around with God to talk about his concern for his nephew and their family. He doesn't want to see anything bad happen to them. So he's kind of just standing there. You can kind of see him kicking the dirt a little bit, working up the courage to say something. And here's why I say that. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him. That word approach in Hebrew is the same meaning for approaching the bench. Abraham is, is going to approach the judge. And here's his opening statement. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? pretty gutsy, isn't it? Like, like I, I, I may be reading this through 21st century lens, but it's almost presumptuous for him to say this to God. 
but oh, it gets better. (laughs) Verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than 50 or five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? Do five people really make that much of a difference, Lord? Like if there's 45 instead of 50, you're, you're going to destroy all of them because of five people? This is, this is Abraham's haggling era. He's haggling with God like you and I would haggle for bananas in a market in Mexico City. He's just, okay, really? And, and God plays along. If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? God said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. I realize I'm pushing it. But let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? Hey, give me 30, give me 30, give me 30, give me 30, give me 30. That's what, I'm, that's what I hear in my voice, in my head, right? Like an auctioneer. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. What just happened? Like, like do, you, do, you, do you read that and go, why did he stop at 10? He's on a roll. Come back to that in a minute. There's a couple questions that I think unlock this passage for us and really the application of it. So I want to talk about two questions. The first question is this. Why is Abraham praying for the city in the first place? This is, the, the, these are people that went to war against Abraham and his family just a couple chapters earlier. Why in the world is he praying for it? And I used to think he was simply doing it um, just because, you know, for the sake of his nephew. He didn't want his family to be destroyed, so he asked God to spare Sodom. But, but if you think about it, he could have just asked God for that directly. He could have just said, God, I know you want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't really like them either. But could you at least give me some time to get Lot and his family out of there first? After that, you rain heavenly tar on those Canaanites and turn it into a parking lot. But until, until I get them out, can you, can you hold on? But he doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask for that directly. Abraham stands before God asking for mercy for people who have wronged him, even putting himself at personal risk in doing so. He keeps saying, God, please don't be mad. Please let me speak one more time. I know I'm just ashes and dust, but he he knows he's pushing it, but he's putting himself on the line for people that have been cruel to him. This, This would be the equivalent of the people of Israel asking God to give mercy to Hamas. Why? Why is he praying for the city? Why would Abraham do this? Evidently, he understood that God chose him to be a channel of blessing and mercy to the nations. Remember, I'm going to make you to a great nation, but I'm going to make you to a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that. It's like that started to click for Abraham. That the reason God is revealing to him his plans is because God wanted him to ask for mercy on their behalf. 
He wanted, and, and, and in that moment, Abraham rises above his feelings of injustice and hurt and anger, and he fulfills the destiny that God gave him. Abraham prays for these people that are, for lack of a better term, his enemies. He prays for them because he sees himself as a river of blessing. Interestingly enough, whenever Jesus lays out the Christian constitution in the Sermon on the Mount, remember what he says about enemies and those who persecute you? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Abraham does this. Second question, why does Abraham stop the negotiations at 10? As far as negotiations go, Abraham seems to have been on a roll, right? He's got God from 50 to 10. Why stop there? Any negotiator knows when you sense an opening, when there's a weakness, when there's blood in the water. Some of you love to buy cars because you're just like, I'm going to get them down, right? You press the issue whenever you sense something, right? So if, if your friend is selling his truck, which you know is worth $50,000, and you go to them and say, hey, um, would you take $10,000 for it? And they say, I would gladly give it to you for $10,000. The next words out of your mouth are, would you take five? And if they go with that, the next words out of your mouth are, how about $1,000? Nothing would thrill my heart more than to sell my truck to you for $1,000. And then you go, do you just want to pay me to take the truck off your hands? All right? That's what good negotiators do. Why, why doesn't Abraham press the issue? Well, we, we don't really know why. We don't know for sure, but maybe he recognized that there wasn't even one righteous person in the city. He didn't get down to one because no matter how low he goes, he couldn't even get to one because there wasn't one. This brings up a question that isn't answered until the New Testament. Is there anyone righteous enough to plead on behalf of the wicked so God will withhold his judgment over them? You know, every year, there's about a million Muslims that take what's called the Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca. Sometimes you can watch the highlights on CNN. It's like a sporting event almost. The final moment of the Hajj is when a million Muslims are circling a big black rock called the Kaaba. And they circle it kind of in a pinwheel motion, getting closer and closer to the middle so they could touch the rock. And, and while those million Muslims are circling the Kaaba, they're all asking God for forgiveness of their sins. And these are the, these are the million, the, the best million Muslims in the world because they care enough and they, they're willing to spend their money to go to the Kaaba. And so the thought is, um, the million best Muslims in the world, all praying simultaneously for forgiveness, there's got to be at least one in there that's righteous enough that God will hear their prayer of forgiveness and forgive all of the Muslims because of that one righteous Muslim. Friends, we know the guy they're looking for. And he wasn't circling a rock in the desert. He died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. 
And, and, and he, he wasn't just asking God for forgiveness. He was purchasing forgiveness with his blood. Your forgiveness, my forgiveness, and those of us who have accepted that sacrifice, those of us who have been forgiven, can ask Jesus to extend his mercy to even the most wicked of sinners. And God the Father will be inclined to hear it because he's so satisfied with the one righteous Son of God. Not with your righteousness. With Jesus. So so you and I, we've been placed in a, a pretty similar situation as Abraham. We've all been placed in a community to pray on his behalf. Did you know God puts you in your family for a reason? And some of you go, oh, really? <laughs> Wish he hadn't. <laughs> Did you know God puts you in that dorm room for a reason? Do you know that God puts you in that classroom with that teacher that you can't stand for a reason? He puts you on that hospital staff. He puts you in that cubicle so that you could ask for blessing and mercy on their behalf. And you say, but they're wicked, they're hard-hearted, they don't want to listen. Yep, neither did Sodom. Didn't stop Abraham. We know they're hard-hearted, but we also know God who placed us there so we could pray for them. In, In Acts 17, Paul says that God has appointed the times and dwelling places in history for every person so that they might reach out and find him. See, your neighbor, they think they moved here to to get a job at Stormont or at Goodyear or at Washburn University. But we know better. God actually moved them there so that they could hear about Jesus. They might not know that, but we do. We do. God placed you in that neighborhood to pray and to give and to sacrifice on their behalf. Grace Point, this is why God has placed us into this community. He didn't place us in Wichita. He didn't put us in Manhattan. He put us here in Topeka. Our placement here is proof that he wants to multiply his blessing to Topeka. That's why we're here. And, and, and do they deserve it? Do your neighbors deserve it? Do your coworkers deserve it? Do your, do your classmates deserve it? No. No more than Sodom deserved Abraham's blessing and no more than you deserve Jesus's. Like he didn't save you because of something you've done. He didn't look at you and go, oh, she is so special. Or, or you know what? He's, he's not that bad of a sinner. He's just confused. No. In the story, do you know who we are in the story? (laughs) We're Sodom. We're the wicked. Jesus is Abraham, praying on our behalf. He asked the Father to spare us, not because of the presence of anyone righteous, but because he, the righteous, voluntarily died in our place. And because God answered that prayer for us, we owe our efforts, we owe our prayer, our generosity, to others. It's not that we owe them personally, it's that we owe Jesus. In Romans 1, Paul describes himself as a debtor to all of those who have never heard about Jesus. And the word debtor in Greek means the same thing it means today. It means you owe somebody something. If you have a debt, you owe them. What did Paul owe people he'd never met? What, what, did, what did Paul owe them? He's never met them. Well, there are two ways to be a debtor. Number one, 
you can loan somebody some money or you can borrow some money from a bank or from an individual, from a credit union, and you owe them that money. But there's another way that you can be a debtor. Let's say that you're, you're destitute, you're penniless, you, are, you have nothing to your name, and a billionaire comes into your life and says, I'm gonna give you enough money to take care of all your needs for the rest of your life. In fact, I'm gonna give you so much, it'll last 10 lifetimes. You'll never be able to pay me back. My only requirement is that when you come across somebody who is similarly destitute and starving like you were, that you share some of what I've given you with them. And in that moment, you owe those starving, destitute people not because you owe them personally, but because you owe the benefactor. You owe the person who rescued you. See, I, every now and then, I'll go out to eat, we'll go out to eat as a family, and, and there's been a couple times where somebody has paid for our meal, and it's, it's awesome, but my first feeling is, who did that? right? You're looking around to see who you know, like who paid for that. There's one time that I actually did find out who it was. And I was texting him with him later. I said, dude, did you pay for our meal? And he hemmed and hawed. And he's like, yeah, we did pay for your meal. I'm like, I'm paying you back. He's like, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. <laughs> no, you're not. Yes, I am. Right? Because you, you owe them, right? And at the very end, he says, listen, if you want to pay me back, what do you think he said? Buy somebody else's meal. In that moment, I was then a debt to people that I hadn't even met yet, okay? So if you're ever in a restaurant and you see me, <laughs> and your bill is paid, just know, it's not because I love you, it's because I owe him, <laughs> right? There's a way that you owe debt to somebody else because of somebody else's generosity to you. That's what Paul's talking about. We're under obligation to those who haven't heard about Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. It's one of, the, one of the best ways that I've ever heard this. David Platt, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. Sit with it. If you're saved, if you're redeemed, if you're forgiven, you owe the gospel, not because of them, not even because of you, but because of Jesus. And the reality is, when we see ourselves as debtors, our life looks different. When, when we realize we're under obligation to the unreached people in our own backyard, to the unreached people around the world, our, our ministry as individuals, as a church, it looks different. And Grace Point, we're, we're, what we're doing in this season matters, and it matters because God can change the eternities of people. Not us. Not us. God changes the eternity of people in our community. He did this just this week with an individual who started coming to Grace Point last week. One woman's life is forever changed because of Jesus' work in and through us. Think about that. God is doing unbelievable things, and it changes eternities. 